Commence primary ignition. Depend greatly on our own point of view. You must unlearn what you have learned. I am looking forward to completing your training. Welcome to Coruscant Community College, a new podcast that focuses on studying Star Wars as text. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we're joined by Brian Young. Brian is an award-winning writer, journalist, filmmaker, and podcaster. He's a prolific documentarian and writes frequently for Slash Film, StarWars.com, Sci-Fi, and others. Brian is also the founder and former editor-in-chief of the Geek News site's Big Shiny Robot. And on top of all that, Brian's also a teacher of writing and film analysis. We're honored that he's taken time out of his busy schedule to be with us today. Welcome, Brian. Oh, thanks for having me. So, um... (laughs) You kind of seem to be one of the go-to guys for in-depth film analysis. I mean, you are writing for big websites like Slash Film, uh, analyzing all these movies. Uh, Just to kind of start out, how did you get into film uh, early on in your life? And what is kind of your background, education in film? Oh, wow. Okay, so my film background was something, film was something I, I really wanted to do from the time I was in school. And I had guidance counselors uh, really sort of laugh at me about it and say like, ah, pick something sensible. And uh, I wasn't interested in picking something sensible. I was interested in picking what I wanted to do. And so my best friend, we started writing screenplays together. By the time we were 18, I think we had two feature film screenplays ready to go. And when we were in line for Phantom Menace, actually, um, behind us in line was a, a producer who was looking for PAs for his movies and said, like, if you guys can help me save my place in line, you can work on my my films and I'll help you produce yours. So um, I'd meant to go to film school. I went out and checked out the Academy of Art College in San Francisco. I'd worked through all that, but the financial end of it uh, fell apart and I wasn't able to go. So what little money I had saved up, my friend and I, we decided we were going to, we were going to make a movie with that. So we built a spaceship interior in my mom's backyard. And we, in between working on commercials and films, uh, you know, we, which, you know, they say a week on a film set is, uh, you know, a year's worth of film school. And that's kind of what we did. And we, we filmed that movie and it made it into the the 2001 No Dance Film Festival. It was a very, very depressing, heady sci-fi film. We, we, we pitched it as sort of Of Mice and Men meets The Twilight Zone on a spaceship. <laughs> and it was, uh, you can still find the trailer online and stuff. And it's, uh, I'm really proud of the work we did, but it was definitely the work of a couple of 19-year-old kids. And so from there film was just really something I was interested in. I was devouring everything I could. Um, I was taking sort of like community college style, like not even like screenwriting classes. My friend and I had another friend and collaborator that we were working with and he was in one of the community college screenwriting classes. And so he was taking the lessons to us and then we were applying it to the stuff we were writing. And, um, and then documentary film sort of, Um, was part of the trajectory that we took there. And it was just working on documentary films. We had a bit of a controversy on the college campus in my hometown. And we filmed that and produced a documentary out of that. And uh, we got distribution for it. And it got picked up by the disinformation company. And we did like a 32 college tour with it and took it to festivals around the world. And I got to travel with that. And then that got us another documentary and, you know, just, just kind of kept working on, on, on film. And that whole time it was all self-learning, right? It was reading every book about film, film analysis, reading Roger Ebert's reviews. I think Roger Ebert, um, I wrote about this on starwars.com when Roger Ebert passed, but like Roger Ebert, like taught me how to watch movies and, 
when I was in high school, that was sort of right when DVDs were coming out and they were like, how can we convince people to buy this version instead of the VHS? And so they were putting all the commentaries on there. And I learned so much from those audio commentaries and just devouring them. And so, um, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm always a little embarrassed that I didn't, I've taught more college than I've attended you know, right now I teach writing, screenwriting and creative writing at the University of Utah for their continuing education program. And I'm teaching at Writer's Digest, um, again, mostly about film. I'm teaching screenwriting and documentary film writing and stuff like that. And it was just uh, just life experience that that got thrown at me over and over and over again. And yeah, I just I just love this stuff. So it sounds to me kind of like I mean, this was like a real passion project. Oh, yeah. You know, for you. And I'm kind of curious because Craig and I are both educators and we have kids and, you know, we teach Star Wars and, you know, movie analysis in the classroom. What would you say to a middle schooler who had that same passion that you felt when you were young and they were interested in kind of pursuing some of the similar things of getting into movies or pursuing an education in filmmaking or something like that? I would say first thing is that middle schooler um, it's so much easier to make your own films, right? Like they probably have a camera on their phone now. Back when I was in middle school, um, one kid in the family or one kid in the neighborhood, his family had a camcorder, like a, v- a compact VHS camcorder. And that was what we all made our neighborhood movies on. And it was so hard. And, and I'll never forget my eighth grade broadcasting communications class. And we would go in there and we would take all these compact VHS tapes and edit them. Uh, VHS, like VCR to VCR, it was a nightmare. But actually the advice I would give that kid is pull out your camera on your phone and just keep shooting, right? Like Martin Scorsese's used iPhone shots in his movies. There's nothing that says you can't do that with yours. There's software to edit on there. And as you go, you'll just learn how to assemble shots. And it was, I was at Celebration 2, and I met Rick McCallum in the hallway. Rick McCallum was the producer of the prequels and the special editions and the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And at Celebration 2, I was actually, I, I funded my trip by assistant directing a movie and it was a brutal shoot. Like it was out in, it was in like outdoors in the middle of winter for three weeks. And the paycheck I got from that is what I spent to get to Celebration 2. And I was just sort of in that mindset. I asked Rick McCallum, he was in the hallway smoking. I mean, this was well after the clean, Indoor Clean Air Act. And it's just Rick McCallum does what Rick McCallum wants. So he's smoking and I approach him and I ask him for advice. And he says, you know what? You're going to make it if you keep shooting. Just keep shooting. And so that's like, that's all I ever did. And I mean, I haven't made it to the degree I want to, but it makes me happy. And so for that, that, that middle schooler, I'd say, just keep shooting. And if it makes you happy, keep doing it. And if it takes you bigger places, that's great. If it doesn't, but it's still making you happy, that's worth it too. I think that's a, that's a great, great answer. I mean, I, I think you are a tremendous success. And it's that it's interesting that you mentioned that just keep shooting because that's it feels very similar to what something Craig and I would say uh, to our students in writing. Just keep writing like experience in writing will come if you keep doing it. Do you think that your experiences in the filmmaking have influenced your your career in writing? Because I know that you have have written a number of things and uh, and write for write fiction on your Patreon. Yeah, no. And I mean, um. I do, I do fiction. I'm represented for fiction as well. And I just, I just had a book come out in the Battletech universe, um, which was a lot of fun. And I really, it has influenced it in that movies are how I digest stories, like in the most dynamic way for me. I really love stories. I love how they work. I love disassembling how they tick. And that was something that I learned dissecting movies and learning how to screenwrite. And I mean, that was the only writing I did until I was 25. I mean, I did short stories and stuff in, in high school and I did journalism in high school. But when I was 25, that was really when things kind of took an, the next step. And that's actually sort of how, I mean, I was on the newspaper team, you know, on the newspaper uh, staff 
in junior high and high school. And that was a really great training, but I never thought about doing that professionally. And then when we were promoting um, our films, the Huffington Post was just starting. And I was sort of the, the de facto publicist for the film. And I was trying to get anybody I could to write about it. And the Huffington Post, after like three times of me harassing them by email, I wasn't really harassing them, but you know how it is in PR. Um, they were like, listen, we're not going to write about your film, but do you want to write a blog post about it? And so then I started putting together, um, I started writing for them and they had me writing about politics. Um, that documentary was political in nature. And so it was sort of a dovetail. And then eventually they had me branch out a little bit from that. And I was going, I was, I was going a little stir crazy because I wanted to write about nerdy stuff. Right. And that's why Big Shiny Robot came around. We created that website, uh, my friend and I, because I wanted to do the kind of stuff I was doing for Big Shiny Robot, but for nerdy or for Huffington Post, but for nerdy stuff. And then I ended up doing it for both anyway. So for Huffington Post, for the longest time, I was writing about Star Wars and comic books. And, you know, I got to interview like half the cast of The Next Generation. And I got to interview all kinds of great artists and writers of DC comics and um, I think I would, because of Huffington Post, I think I was the first person who interviewed Scott Snyder, who's sort of rocketed to fame for Batman comics um, before American Vampire even came out. And we ended up after the call for American Vampire, we spent two hours on the phone just nerding out about Batman. And I was like, man, this guy's going places. So my film career really pivoted me into the the nonfiction and the analysis and the journalism work I do. And it absolutely influences, uh, like no matter what, like it influences how I see stories and perceive them and how I break them down. And when I teach, I do teach a lot of creative writing for prose, but I use movies as examples for story structure and for story techniques so much more often than books. And it's not because I'm not well read. I mean, I read voraciously. I, 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 try to average reading about a book a week at least but movies are so much more of a common cultural touchstone that more more of us in these classes have seen the same movies than we have read the same books um, because books take so much more of an investment that's not a, a knock on books it's just like we all have limited time budgets for our story consumption and so in my classes whether they're about screenwriting or about novel writing or short stories um, movies are really the examples that work best for the widest audience. And I've had a lot of success using them in that teaching. Yeah, that's awesome. We, we've seen a lot of that same success too with trying to teach kids things like plot and, and propping in film clips that kids recognize that and they can more quickly uh, assimilate the information because they know, you know, they know the story and it's just, a, yeah. you know, it's, it's all the same thing. We've, we've kind of had this discussion Lots of times and, and with with admin getting kind of permission to use film in class, you know, that, that reading and viewing are really the same skill. Yeah, no, it really is. That's why I love I mean, I love Craig, you I mean, back on I mean, years ago and on Full of Sith in our early days, like the way you broke down the Star Wars movies for your students. I think that's as valuable in teaching storytelling as actually anything else. And just having those discussions. Right. Like I love showing movies to people for the first time and then having those discussions. And I love having those in an academic setting as well to say like, how did this make you feel? Why did, why do you think that makes you feel that way? And things like that. It's just, they're such, they're such great tools. And I loved, I was really inspired and really loved the conversations that we would have on full of Sith as you came back and reported how the, the students were doing that. Those were, those were good times. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Brian, about teaching. How did you get into teaching uh, these these courses? I mean, clearly you've you've shown that you have life experience and you have this knowledge. But how did you get recruited or or roped into or offered um, the opportunity to teach? It really kind of depends on the situation. Like the first teaching I was doing was screenwriting, and it was at a state college. And it was just guest stuff. And it, well, it was it was at a state college and the high school I went to. Like my English teacher from high school is a friend of mine now. Um, actually, both my English teachers that were like meant the most to me are still still friends. And they he had asked me to come in and teach his students stuff. And so that was like 
you know, two years out of high school, I was coming back to talk about writing uh, to, to other students who were barely younger than me. And then um, I had another friend who had gotten a gig as adjunct faculty teaching filmmaking and he knew I was a better screenwriter than he was uh, than he was. So he asked me to come in and start teaching, you know, come in and do two two classes as a guest doing screenwriting and stuff like that. And then um, now the opportunities um, really rose out of conferences and conventions. Right. I do all kinds. Well, I before the pandemic, sure. um, I was doing all kinds of conferences and conventions and teaching and, you know, word got around that I wasn't terrible at it. And um, through some of the professional organizations that I've gotten involved in, um, like right now, I'm the the president elect of the League of Utah Writers. And through that organization, the University of Utah approached me and said, would you be willing to teach um, in our community, our continuing education department? And they tried me out with one class and got really great reviews back. And then they just kept bringing me back. And with Writer's Digest, with their online university, I was writing for Script Magazine, which is owned by the same place. And um, they just really liked my stuff. And they put out an open call for instructors. And they really liked the curriculum I put together. So it was just sort of auditioning for the part, really, in, in both those cases. It was on paper, I had all of the right credentials minus the college degree. And I was just, I don't know, I fooled them into thinking I could do it after they, they watched me. So, yeah. well, you, you do it enough times and then you've done it enough times and it kind of self perpetuates, it sounds like. Yeah. I was curious um, since, since we're in the pandemic and, and we've been doing distance learning, I'm curious just what your approach has been or your thoughts about distance learning. How's that working out for you? It depends on who we're talking about, right? Like if we're talking about my kindergartner, it's been, um, I mean, it's been a blessing on one hand and, and the teachers that have been behind it are absolute superheroes. I don't think I can handle a kindergarten class in person, let alone 30 of them on Zoom. And and it's hard to keep my one kindergartner on task. I have no idea how her teachers do it. But for me as a teacher, I mean, I'm teaching adults, so it's a lot easier but there is that Zoom fatigue, right? Like those of us that that work day jobs where we have to be on Zoom meetings all day. And so the way I've really approached it is really trying to make it hands-on where typically I'll teach in three-hour blocks and we will break every 20, 20 minutes or so after, you know, after 15 or 20 minutes of lecture, we'll break for 25 minutes or so and actually do some writing. And then we'll come back and report about that, have a discussion about it. So it, it breaks it up and it really feels different. I've, I've been to some of, I've been to some online classes too, because I I'm curious how people have been doing it. And some of them will just sit there and lecture for an hour. And uh, that doesn't necessarily work for me. So I assume it wouldn't necessarily work for others, but I always learn good things. I just do it in chunks. So I'm like, well, why don't I build the chunks of time into the class so that they don't have to get up and leave or get antsy? And yeah, I, I think, that. oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say that that just makes a lot of sense that that you're taking breaks from that and then give them something that's not, you know, that's kind of independent so that you can yeah. kind of come back. You know, that's that's something that we've learned, you know, as teachers, like talk for 10 minutes, let them work for two. And it's obviously yeah. stretched out over a longer break. But I mean, that's, that's sound teaching well, philosophy. With, with adults, I think the thing is, is that like, and, and I find like, even though I'm a professional writer and I, I will... I can motivate myself to sit and work on whatever deadline for however long I need to, to work on it. But with really busy adults looking to get into writing and that are taking, you know, the sort of classes I'm teaching, they don't often afford themselves the time to be creative, right? But they've paid for a course for me to teach to help activate their creativity. And so they've blocked out that three hour chunk a week for the, the six or 10 weeks or whatever my course is. And if I give them half of that back to actually produce something, I see that I'm not having people drop out and they're getting excited about the stuff they're producing. And they're they're not dreading the time because it's not just three hours of me yammering on. No one needs three hours of my voice. Or anyone's really. A little bit of creative expression. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been uh, talking about the uh, prequel movies recently and kind of going through an analysis of them. Uh, and we're trying to like deconstruct each of the films based on the framework that we kind of came up with and teach our own students. 
So we kind of broke down uh, films into cinematography, sound, performance, set design, and then a little bit of the kind of in-world Star Wars universe. Uh, And so we kind of approach it as like a framework, as a lens to view the movie. Do you have a lens when you watch the prequels or Star Wars in general? Yeah, one thing that I think is really important about Star Wars is that they're all period pieces, right? Um, The classic trilogy is really a period piece from the late 70s and early 80s. And they felt very contemporary when they were being made, but they were a contemporary pastiche of things that had come before. And we all know that. George Lucas talks about that a lot. But I think one of the things that people miss about the prequels is that George was setting them 20, 30 years before the prequel or before the classic trilogy. And so he went back 30 or 40 years in film history and plucked out a style of acting and dialogue that is more more similar to movies of the 30s and 40s with that, uh, that faux mid-Atlantic accent and the really, you know, sort of, uh, he was he was making a movie that looked like it was supposed to step out of the 30s or 40s, but with all of this modern varnish to it. And then if you look at the sequel trilogy, enough time has passed between the modern sensibilities of the classic trilogy and the, prequel, uh, the sequel trilogy that it feels like a period piece for how society would advance uh, just based on the style of acting. And so one of those lenses for the prequels is really to understand the intent of the artist who made it and how they were trying to create a an homage to a different style of movies than we were used to and that even the classic trilogy were, were trying to ape. Like he picked different touchstones there. One of the lenses I watch all the Star Wars, one of the lenses I watch like any movie on is through the lens of other movies and through film history, especially with really learned filmmakers like George Lucas. And I'm probably using it wrong, but Umberto Eco, the writer, was really into like semiotics, right? Where it's just like, you can put a symbol of a thing in a story and an audience who understands what that symbol is, is going to respond to it in a different way than an audience who isn't. And it's going to be additive to the story. And I kind of look at the cinematic influences of, Star Wars is sort of like a like semi like like cinematic semiotics, right? Where you know, George Lucas crams the entirety of John Ford's The Searchers into Attack of the Clones, and I remember how The Searchers makes me feel emotionally and I'm able to apply that to the symbology that he shows me straight out of that movie. Um Revenge of the Sith has moments of 2001 and that discomfort, right? Like um especially as you're you're looking at disorientation at the moon base versus the way the, the shot is set up the same way on Polis Massa. If you have the encyclopedia, if you try, no one has the encyclopedic knowledge of films of George Lucas, but if you can identify them and apply the feelings and the emotions and the movements that he's um, referencing, it makes your experience a lot richer because you're actually digging deeper into themes that he's thinking of in that symbology. It's really interesting because I've heard Craig talk about how Lucas is trying to bring out that kind of 30s and 40s uh, style of of movie making in the prequels. Um, When you're talking about the semiotics of Star Wars, I found that really interesting comparing the prequels and the sequels. uh, Because obviously in the prequels, you've got George Lucas, who's kind of in charge of everything. But then in the sequels, you've got J.J. and Ryan, who, I mean, are fairly different from George Lucas, but they're also different between the two of them. Do you feel like there's a semiotics of the sequel trilogy as well? I, th- I mean, I think there have. I've done a lot of analysis on the movies. I think the most the most occurs in The Last Jedi, but there's still a lot in Force Awakens. I think The Force Awakens is the most referential to Star Wars of any of the movies, if that makes sense, right? Like, um, not just the, the cyclical nature of the story, um, which is which is really fascinating to me, right? Where you've got in the first chapter of each trilogy, you've got a whiz kid pilot mechanic on a desert planet who doesn't know really what the force is, but they're able to tap into it in small ways. And a mentor comes and is able to get them away from there. And that mentor ends up, you know, cut down by a red lightsaber. And, and they all have that, right? Whether that's Anakin and Qui-Gon or Luke and Obi-Wan, or in this case, what made Force Awakens so interesting for me 
was noticing that pattern repeating, but noticing that Luke was absent. Luke was the one who should have been in that mentor position. So as soon as Han had his speech about how all of it was true in the same spot, right, on the Millennium Falcon that Obi-Wan gave Luke his first lessons in the Force, for me, the semiotics of it, the, the symbology, the repeating nature of the story and the storytelling told me, oh, Han's days are numbered. Han is the one who's going to have to make this sacrifice because that's how Star Wars works. There's just no two ways about it. And that's why I love the middle chapters, too, because they really upend that. And uh, the middle chapters had that same thing, too, right? Where, you know, Attack of the Clones, Anakin goes against the wishes of his masters to go save the people that are important to him. Um, Luke does the same thing in Empire. And Rey goes against the wishes of Luke. And it's not even somebody who's important to her. I think that's what makes Rey such an interesting character. She has so much compassion that she's willing to do this for Kylo Ren to give him a chance because Luke never did. Or Luke did, but it was so misinterpreted or or, or mishandled that, that maybe Ben never thought he had that chance. And so um, watching how that plays out is really interesting. But with Last Jedi, well, I mean, with Force Awakens, you also have shades of wizard of oz and you have shades of other movies like that um with rise of skywalker i was really surprised rise of skywalker turns on a dime every 10 minutes just like the structure of raiders of the lost ark right raiders of the lost ark puts indiana jones in a situation seeking an artifact that's going to lead him to a bigger bad guy or dealing with that or whatever and Ray follows the clues of the Sith dagger and they're in like, and I time this once. I mean, I've watched these movies a lot. And when I, when I get to the point where I'm seeing them in the movie theater and I'm literally the only one there, I'll do things like open up my phone and run my clock and my timer. So I can tell when these things are happening and yeah, like, like rise of Skywalker. If you time it out just about every 10 minutes, the story has a shift in value. It turns on a dime into a different, problem and they have to solve that but come up with a bigger problem as they go all the way through the film and that's very much referential to indiana jones um which makes a lot of sense when you think that lawrence kasdan is who taught jj abrams how to write a star wars movie um Mm -hmm. so so the sequel trilogy does have all of that stuff right and it's just it's not filtered through the lens of one person, right? So J.J. Abrams is more inspired by Star Wars and Lucas and Spielberg so that there's more Lucas and Spielberg in there. I think Ryan Johnson created a more pure Star Wars experience that didn't sort of chase its own tail because Ryan Johnson, while he is inspired by those filmmakers, had deeper stuff to pull from, whether that's 12 O'Clock High, which was really great with the Holdo Maneuver or Rashomon, I think, the fact that Rashomon is so front and center um, as inspiration, direct inspiration from a Kurosawa film makes The Last Jedi feel so Star Wars to me. Yeah, I think I think Johnson's painting with a different palette, as it were, uh, you know, a different set of inspirations uh, rather than J.J. And, and Lucas. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Going back to the source a little bit more. Yeah, that's, you know, that's going to make me watch Rise of Skywalker a different way now. If I, if I think of it as, you know, kind of a cousin or a descendant of, of Raiders, that will, that will definitely change my, my view and hopefully Matt's as well. <laughs> I, uh, I was not the biggest fan of Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I mean, if I have to pick, I mean, like, I'm the sort of person who when somebody says, what's your favorite Star Wars movie, I'm going to say whichever one I'm watching. But if I'm like, if somebody <laughs> twists my arm and they're like, what's your least favorite? It's going to be Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. But I mean, like the world's worst Star Wars movie is still like a 10 for me. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, like I love Star Wars. And for me, loving something doesn't mean that it's flawless. It means loving it in spite of its flaws. Yeah. yeah. So for like, there's still moments like I love C-3PO. Oh, yeah. I In Rise of Skywalker. That's C-3PO's movie, in my opinion. He's fantastic in it. And I love that. But there's there's little moments for me as a teacher who teaches, you know, narrative writing and stuff, uh, as, as well as you, it, it grates me a little bit, all the kind of fake out deaths. Because uh, <laughs> it feels like this, this horrible moment when I first saw Chewbacca die in that starship. I was like, wow, that that is a horrific thing that Ray is going to have to bear. And... I mean, what what a moment for her 
I mean, and for the audience, we we lose this beloved character, uh, but Ray is very much directly involved in her friend's death. And my first thought is, how is she going to deal with that? And for me, it was just kind of an emotional letdown to go, oh, no, he's fine. Even though I don't, want, I didn't want Chewbacca to die. Still, it it it, it didn't it didn't jive yeah. with me. No, there is some good. There are some moments of good writing in there that that I think kind of slip under the radar. One of my favorites is. I, I, after the first time I watched the movie, I was trying to figure out why Ray would sit down and tell BB-8 how and why she healed the serpent, right? And then you see that BB-8 is trying to emulate his master later when he does the, the exact same thing to Dio, where he inst- you know she's like, I just gave him a little bit of my life force and it was fine. And he does that to Dio and sort of gives that new life. And you see how Ray spreads that optimism around through the writing in the writing in ways that maybe don't seem obvious at first. I love that. And it also calls back to the compassion that Ray showed to BB-8 yeah. in Force Awakens yeah. too, going out of her way to save BB-8 from the the raider. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, in the midst of our, our prequel discussion, when we got to Revenge of the Sith, we talked a little bit about uh, whether or not we thought the Jedi might have been suffering from PTSD because of the deaths of all of their clones. And and whether or not that might have contributed to their lack or their losing the ability to tap into the force, uh, and which would in turn help the dark side cloud their judgment. And uh, we were just curious what you thought about that theory. If you've heard that, or if, or if you have any thoughts, I about haven't that. heard that specifically. But I mean, I think that that loss of life is definitely something that's affecting. I mean, like if your job is to be compassionate, and there's people dying around you all the time, that has to be affecting. But I think for the Jedi, so much of it is, if you go back and listen to George Lucas talk about what balance to the Force is, it's not um, an equal number of light side users and dark side users. It's the absence of malice in one's actions. And it's a compassion that defines all of one's actions. And at the point where the Jedi are stepping in in their roles as generals instead of peacekeepers, and they're trying to twist, just like Anakin does to Padme, compassion into something it's not, and to perpetuate something like a war. I think that affected them as much as any of that because it it, it sort of disrupted and, and put their ideals off balance. And that's the balance of the force that I think the prophecy was talking about much more than the actual physical number of force users in the galaxy. But that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I've 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 heard you you talk about that for others too. That yeah, the balance of the force is not there's two Jedi and two Sith. Yeah, I always thought that was far too simplistic. That it, it really is more about you know the state of the galaxy and and the way compassion's being used and the way Jedi are using the force. Well, if we were looking at something like what would you say balance in our ecosystem is, right? It's all things living in harmony, not how much oil we can pump out of the rainforest or whatever, right? Like, it's like, well, for every tree, we're going to have one pipeline. That's not how balance works in that regard. And um, especially through the introduction of Qui-Gon, we learn about the forces of living things so much like that, that that I think it it's directly um, applied in that way, that philosophy. And, and I think that's a really... Um, compassionate message that that George Lucas brings out, right? That that balance is being a steward and taking care of things and not acting with aggression. And I actually think that uh, Ryan Johnson in The Last Jedi kind of does a good job of illustrating that. There's that that moment when when Luke is trying to explain to Ray the Force, and you have these cut shots, right, of of life and death and and all these different things. Where in any kind of circle of life. You know, light side of the force doesn't mean that there isn't death. It doesn't mean that there isn't pain or suffering. And I think that's also something that Anakin misunderstands and never really gets proper instruction on. And which is something else that Craig and I talked about where, you know, we kind of wondered if if Qui-Gon had survived episode one and if he had been teaching Anakin from from the beginning, uh, to me, Qui-Gon seemed like a much more spiritually grounded person than Obi-Wan. Uh, Obi-Wan's one of my favorite characters, but he always felt to me more like a, a brother and a friend to Anakin rather than the true mentor yeah. uh, that I would say he is more to Luke and Qui-Gon was to Obi-Wan. 
you know, I, I do kind of wonder, you know, what what would have happened in that situation? Things that definitely would have been a lot different. I think I think Anakin, when he left the Jedi Order, he needed someone who could be compassionate in a way that he didn't get from Obi-Wan because Obi-Wan didn't have the equipment to do that. And Qui-Gon did because he was bucking the the dogma of the Jedi and Palpatine saw that stepped in and offered him that warmth in a way that the Jedi couldn't because the Jedi were like, no, I mean, you go back and, and look at revenge of the Sith. Anakin does the right thing when he is suffering from his nightmares. He goes to master Yoda and master Yoda says, well, the answer you're looking for is you just need to learn to let go of the things you love. And that's a, it's a correct answer, but it's a way more difficult proposition when you're dealing with someone's wife. And Anakin maybe didn't need the correct answer. He needed a compassionate answer. And Palpatine's the one who gave him the compassionate answer. Who was like, yeah, no, we'll work on this. We'll fix this. We'll make sure this doesn't happen. And Yoda could have probed deeper. I mean, Obi-Wan could have too. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind Obi-Wan knew what was going on between the two of them. And he could have helped a little more and offered Anakin a little bit more compassion instead of trying to remain cold and just ignore that part of their relationship. But I think Qui-Gon would have been there for it. And I also think that even Obi-Wan, in some sense, is a little cold because Anakin also comes to Obi-Wan and says, I'm having these these dreams, or they talk about it, and Obi-Wan says, the dreams will pass yeah. in time, Get which over again, it. isn't wrong, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not it's not a loving yeah. answer. It's not, like you said, it's not a compassionate answer. And I think that's that's one of the reasons I love Star Wars is that thematically, it's so resonant with, it's such a wholesome message of, like the reason Anakin falls is because of a lack of love, a lack of compassion. And the reason that he's redeemed in Return of the Jedi is from Luke's love and compassion. Yeah. And the fact that Luke can see the good in Vader and he takes a chance and believes in it. Yeah, absolutely. So if you had to describe it, like why is Star Wars important to you? And has that evolved over the years? Um, I mean, it has. Star Wars feels like it always sort of enters my life in really important moments. The first time I saw Star Wars, it really bowled me over with its magic. And, and it felt like there was there was magic in the world. There was something really dynamic about it. As I was growing up through my childhood, I I grew up in a, in a really, really tough household. It was full of, like my dad was... Um, physically abusive and, and verbally abusive. And the message that resonated with me when I would retreat to Star Wars was that maybe one day I'll be able to take my my dad's mask off the way Luke is able to take Vader's off. And it really helped give me that hope and that optimism through those really dark years. And that didn't end up happening to me, but Star Wars really helped get me there. And when... Um, my dad and I were finally able to just part ways permanently. Phantom Menace was coming out. It was just sort of this really great new stage of my life. And Phantom Menace sort of represented this renewal for me. Attack of the Clones really changed a little bit of that too. Um, my son was born just a few days after Attack of the Clones came out. And it was, it was the best worst day of my life. Um, he almost died in childbirth. My wife almost died too. And, and, we didn't even know, we didn't even know like, you know, his sex at all. We didn't, we didn't know that. And they sort of left me in the room for the emergency C-section and I'm hearing doctors uh, pulling him out and then performing CPR on him. And a nurse comes up and says, don't worry, they're doing everything they can to save your son. And I'm like, I, it's a boy. And, you know, it was just really rough. And he ended up, spending a couple of weeks in the newborn ICU. And um, we were at a small, a small, more, not, I don't want to say rural, but more rural hospital than in a big city. And because my wife had that emergency C-section and he had a collapsed lung from them reviving him, they had to take them to separate hospitals. So my wife was in one hospital and Anakin was in another hospital. And so we spent sort of four days. I spent four days splitting my time between the two hospitals. And I was just exhausted. And finally, when my wife got discharged, she told me to go take a break. She told me to just get out. And the place I went was Attack of the Clones. And there was nothing more comforting than sitting down in a movie theater by myself after this week of just 
draining emotional just ups and downs and being taken over by star wars and it was just it was really magical and it really helped a lot and then getting to share revenge of the sith with my son about the same age at about the same age as i was when i first experienced return of the jedi in the theater was really important to me and and that it evolved that and then being able to um experience it through the the disney era as a professional as someone who's covering the events as someone who's getting to interview the cast and crew as someone who's getting to go to the premieres it's it's really ushered in a different time in my life and star wars has always been there to make me feel good about things and it has evolved over the years um, but it's never stopped giving me that hope and that creative nourishment and that emotional nourishment that i've needed and it grows with you, right? You understand Star Wars different at five than you do at 30. Do you understand it differently at 40, right? I don't know if I would have responded to The Last Jedi as well as I had, had I not had a, you know, 17-year-old, 16-year-old kid. And, you know, seeing that tired, broken Luke really resonated with me, right? And that line that Yoda had, right? We are what they grow beyond. Like I weep every time I read, I, I hear that line and see it in the context of the movie because it feels I'm at the point where my two oldest kids are getting ready to, you know, once the pandemic's over, they've go, they both got plans to move out and feeling like I'm that thing that they've grown beyond is hard. And Star Wars has helped me tap into that and help me understand that as well. So yeah, it's evolved and my understanding of it is of it has evolved over the years, but it's never let me down. Nice. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that when we were doing, I think, especially The Phantom Menace, that, you know, Matt and I are significantly different in age. And so Matt was pretty young when he saw it. And so he kind of grew up with that and loved it as a kid. And now he's more critical of it, filmmaking wise. And he, but he doesn't have any kids yet. And, but I do. And so I'm able to, and I was an adult, I was in my mid 20s when it came out and liked it fine. But now that I have kids, especially a daughter who loves Jar Jar, you know, it's it's a different thing when you can kind of live vicariously through them and have that shared experience where it has evolved from when I was a kid growing up to now I'm seeing it with my kids. I mean, I remember yeah. when the announcement came uh, that there was going to be more Star Wars films. One of my very first thoughts was, I'm going to get to go see Star Wars in the theater with my kids. Yeah, no, that was that was a really overwhelming feeling. Um, and I was able to take my kids to that. I got to take Anakin to the premiere of Solo, and that was an incredible experience. But I mean, you talk about Jar Jar. Jar Jar is one of those characters. And I was like, I was 18 when Phantom Menace came out. And I was like, Jar Jar's fine. He doesn't bother me. I don't know why everybody's bothered by Jar Jar. But the more I hadn't I hadn't taken that that deep dive into into classic silent cinema yet. And the more I, I was watching Buster Keaton, the more I was watching Charlie Chaplin, the more I was watching Harold Lloyd, the more I realized that George Lucas was taking these bits from these great classic silent comedians and then recreating them shot for shot. And then I was able to bring all of that joy for, from, from those classic films into the Phantom Menace as well. And one of my proudest moments as a, as a dad, and I, I like all of my kids came to this realization on their own without me actually stepping in to do it. But um, I'm a big believer in, in, you know, raising my kids on the classics. So uh, Valkyrie and I, um, before she did Star Wars, we went through a whole bunch of Chaplin, right? We did we did The Kid and Easy Street and City, A Dog's Life and City Lights. And she loves The Kid. The Kid is such an emotionally affecting movie for, you know, a five-year-old to watch. And then when we watched Phantom Menace and she, she connected the dots on her own between Jar Jar and, and Chaplin, it was just like, yes, it's working. <laughs> yeah. It actually kind of reminds me of something that I heard once. Because, you know, Star Wars is a, is a pivotal movie in film history. Yeah. But for modern audiences to truly understand what it was like, you have to see all the sci-fi films building up to yeah. Star Wars. Right. Otherwise, you can't truly appreciate it. The special effects, how timeless they still are, uh, the writing, just how classic, you know, of, of a story yeah. it is. 
you, you have to have that context. Otherwise, it's just an old film from the 70s. And I would argue, too, for people that like a really great trilogy to watch to really understand the mind of George Lucas is THX 1138, American Graffiti, and then A New Hope. Watching those three, like Star Wars is such a synthesis of everything he learned and all of the philosophy he tried to inject into those two movies, but with the Flash Gordon and Kurosawa sheen. And Kurosawa is another one of those things where it's just like you can go through Kurosawa's filmography and then really watch all the Star Wars movies. And thanks to, I mean, J.J. Abrams sort of references Kurosawa films in much more oblique ways. He very specifically calls out High and Low, which is not necessarily the sort of film that you'd expect inspiring a Star Wars movie. But there is a quiet stillness that he borrowed from it, but not as overt as Ryan Johnson or George Lucas. But going through Hidden Fortress and going through Rashomon and going through Seven Samurai and even in some cases... um, Stray Dog or Kagamusha, like going through all of those and seeing those influences on George as the films progress is so just, just, I don't know. I I love connecting all those dots. Um, Star Wars, I think works for me so effectively because it has the in-universe dots, right? Like where it's like all the canon dots that you can put together, but then all the film history dots as well. So it's like, you have to bring so much knowledge to the past. That's, that's how I love watching movies, right? Is to be shown something new, but also see how it relates to everything else. Um, whether that's in my, what are that, whether that's metaphysically, whether that's in my interpersonal relationships or whether that's film history, I really love seeing how a film interconnects with that. And Star Wars is just the gift that keeps giving on the internal level in universe but also on the outside and the external kind of multiple facets you can enjoy it from so i i did want to ask you i find really interesting is what is something that we should ask you that we don't know enough to ask Uh, i don't know um i mean that's hard because i don't know it either um (laughs) um man that's that's a tough question um I mean, I think you, you're you probably the first interview that's actually asked me about how I got into film. And that's the first time I've talked about that film on a podcast, I think, really, except for oblique mentions on my show. Um, and I think that one's really important. Um, actually, the other question, I mean, like, I'm not sure how you'd phrase the question, but the answer would be it wasn't Star Wars that made me want to be in, in, in film. It was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Who Framed Roger Rabbit at the time, I don't, you know, for people who were around at that time, I was eight years old when it came out and people forget like in 1988, Star Wars was dead. Like it wasn't around, it was gone. Um, the RPG had just come out or was just about to come out or, or whatever. And, and Star Wars wasn't anywhere. The behind the scenes documentaries weren't anywhere, but Roger Rabbit was the next big evolution in special effects. And so every night on TV, you know, two weeks before Roger Rabbit came out and two weeks after, they had these just wonderful behind the scenes documentaries. And it was the first time I realized that films were made art. There was something that had intention behind everything and that every moment was perfectly manicured by a team of artists to create the one jigsaw puzzle piece for the rest of the movie. And I got fascinated with it. Roger Rabbit was the first film I ever saw multiple times in the theater because my parents took me to go see it. And then I went to school and told my friends, hey, you need to go see this. And when you do tell your parents you're going to see it, you need to bring me too. And I did this eight times. Um, So so I went, I just, I studied that movie. And I got to know um, Richard LaParmentier really well. Richard LaParmentier was um, Admiral Motti in A New Hope. And he was also Lieutenant Santino in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And he's played in all kinds of great movies too. He did, he was in Bond movies. He was in a Superman movie. He was, you know, he was just in all kinds of stuff. And the thing I I learned about Richard is that for one, the movie he was most proud of was Warren Beatty's Reds. So I got to act in a scene with Gene Hackman. 
And that's the pinnacle of my career. Forget Star Wars, forget Roger Rabbit. I got to be in a scene with Hackman. And he said, you know, you're the only Star Wars fan I've ever met that only wants to talk about Roger Rabbit. I don't get it. (laughs) And I mean, I got plenty of Star Wars stories out of him too, but I was really fascinated by Roger Rabbit. And I got connected with him because a, a friend, a mutual friend of ours knew that I was doing film production. He wanted to, he wanted to make a fan film and uh, he wanted it based on apocalypse now. And, and I helped him refine the script and we did some location scouting. We were going to shoot in Georgia of all places. And uh, it all sort of fizzled and it didn't happen, but it, it was this riff on apocalypse now called Motti now. And he was going to play the Colonel Kurtz character of Motti. And his presupposition for the story was that um, Motti actually, like, he's like, there's nothing there that says Motti would have stayed on the Death Star. And I don't believe he would have. And I think he'd just leave. And so we cast a guy as Admiral Piet. And the idea is that Piet is the Michael uh, Martin Sheen character going into the jungle to find Motti and bring him out like Apocalypse Now. And I really wish we would have made it. And I'm really, I still to this day regret that we didn't make it happen because I think it would have been a gift to the world. I still have the script. It was, that was another part of that film education that uh, I had where I had someone like Richard Leparmentier who'd been in all kinds of films and had all kinds of experience. And he would, I mean, he was living in, in England and he would, he would just call out of the blue and if I needed to talk to him, I'd have to email him and he'd call me because he was insistent he would pay for the charges. And we would just talk for hours about movies. And uh, yeah, no, he was uh, he was a really great guy. And I'm I feel so lucky that I've been able to, like, learn storytelling from so many different people who worked on Star Wars. I mean, I would count Mike Stackpole, Aaron Alston and Timothy Zahn as my friends and and some of the most influential storytelling mentors i've ever had you know and and i mean i've only had a couple of of conversations with ryan johnson but every time he sort of slyly slides into my dms to give me a seal of approval on some of my analysis it's it's like uh it's just really it feels good um and the interview we did uh, we did an interview together for script magazine and it was just i learned so much in that half hour we got to talk and I hope to get. To, I hope I get to do it again sometime because I learn from him every time I see one of his movies, and I learn from him every time we've talked. And I feel preposterously lucky that I've been able to learn from these people, and 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 uh, you know George too. I've been able to meet and talk to George. That's that's a fun story. That's another one I'd ha- I'd have had you ask me about. But well, let me ask. Let me ask this one. What's one thing you wish you would have known when you started your career? And you could also, you know, what kind of advice would you give to someone who's, you know, what's, what what advice would you give to 17-year-old Brian? Work harder. Um, I feel like I'm a pretty hard worker, but but I should have put the work in more and, and don't give up on things as easily, but also be a realist about it and don't think that, uh, don't put your eggs all in one basket, right? For a long time, um, the way I approached things was, I had one project in front of me and everything that was go- great was going to come out of that one project. And I sort of left every other idea or thing that I was doing by the wayside. And that's just really not how things work. And the way I feel like I've found success now is just always having a dozen irons in the fire. And yeah, it bites you in the, it bites you in the behind sometimes when you have to pull four of those irons out and burn yourself with them at the same time. And that's, I mean, that's something I'm going through right now. I got, I got three huge projects that I didn't realize any one of them was going to come to fruition quickly, let alone all at the same time. But uh, I get through it and to be able to learn how to juggle those things is important. So don't get so single-mindedly focused on one project or one idea, have more, Right. That's something I've, I've learned a lot. So many screenwriters in Hollywood, so many novelists trying to get published, they write one screenplay, they write one book, and then they take it to a whole bunch of agents. And it gets rejected because they've only written one book or one screenplay. Right. Like who would just sit down and go like, I'm going to write a symphony right now, like for the first time ever and then expect to sell it. Right. But for some reason, with screenwriting and with novels, we think that. 
And I would tell myself like, hey, these first ones are going to be you learning. Don't think that it's going to be your ticket, right? You got to learn. So yep. be able to cast them aside, put them, put them behind you and work on the next thing. Yeah. Keep, Keep shooting. shooting. Exactly. Yep. That's good advice. So what do you think the future of Star Wars looks like, especially in Disney's hands? Well, for one, I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. I think Disney's just sort of shoveling money at it, letting Lucasfilm do their thing with it. And I think in Kathleen Kennedy's hands, the future of Star Wars, I think it's I think it's really bright. You know, we I'm really excited for how they're going to pull off the interconnected television universe. Um, I think they've already really done TV really well with Clone Wars and Rebels and how that's built. And then seeing that built further, this was the future George Lucas was aiming for, right? And I think people forget that, that that streaming, streaming long format, like long series live action television was where George Lucas was aiming the franchise in the first place. Um, you know, they produced something like 80 hours of that Underworlds uh, series with Rick McCallum working on it pretty adamantly and, and Ronald Moore from Battlestar Galactica and Deep Space Nine um, in that writer's room. And they're still pulling ideas from that. And they've kind of shifted the, the strategy of how they're telling their stories and what stories they're telling. But I think this, the future of Star Wars is that they're going to continue innovating how they make how they make movies and how they make TV. They're going to keep telling these interconnected stories. And I think the High Republic really proves that they're going to find new um, time periods. So we're not going to be locked down into the same sort of 50 year, you know, half a century era. We'll get, we'll get outside of that sooner than later. And uh, I mean, we know for sure that one of the TV series is the cap off to the end of the High Republic era with Leslie Headland's Aconite. But I think one of the things that makes Star Wars so special is how it's always pushed the boundaries of technology, right? Whether that's the special effects in A New Hope, whether that's the advancements in sound design and um, those same special effects like taken to the nth degree in Return of the Jedi, whether that's the push for digital in Phantom Menace or the actual digital filmmaking processes that the entire film industry is now predicated on that were pioneered in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, um, watching them do these things, right? The digital replacements with Tarkin and Leia, the volume, right? The, the, the way they're shooting the Mandalorian is astounding technology and it's making it so that they can, the reason George Lucas didn't produce Star Wars Underworld is because he thought it would be too expensive and they've solved those problems with the technology they're using on the Mandalorian. And I think that's the future of Star Wars. They're going to keep advancing the technology because they have the smartest people in the world working on this stuff. And that's what ILM always has done and always will do. And we're going to get bigger Star Wars stories more often. And that's the future of Star Wars. It's really interesting uh, that you brought up the TV because that's kind of where my mind goes to. Uh, and the fact that you kind of say, you know, Star Wars really isn't in Disney's hands. It's in Kathleen Kennedy's and, and Lucasfilm. And it kind of reminds me of Kevin Feige and Marvel, how he is, you could kind of say, the the mastermind of the, the MCU. And this is something that Craig and I have talked about uh, briefly in private, at least, is, you know, one of the criticisms of the Marvel movies, which we both really enjoy, is that they can sometimes feel uh, samey uh, or a little generic, mm -hmm. the films. Do you have any fear that Star Wars might fall into that trap of being kind of the MCU, but Star Wars? And, and I say that because, you know, I one of the reasons I love Last Jedi is because it feels like it broke the mold a little bit and tried to to be something a little I'll different. I'll tell you why I'm not concerned about that, because I think the way Kevin Feige's approach to Marvel is a lot different than Kathleen Kennedy's approach to Star Wars. And Kathleen Kennedy has brought more of an auteur approach to it where the filmmakers really get to spread their wings and tell the story they want. Granted, they've got the guardrails of the universe and the producers working on them, but not the same sort of way that Kevin Feige does, right? Like, can you name half the film directors of Marvel movies? I, um, I probably can, but I'm a, I'm a film nerd that way. But most well, people I mean, can, right? like, I mean, like, who was the guy... Yeah, the, the Russo, Russo brothers. brothers. <laughs> so, like, who was the guy who directed uh, Spider-Man: Homecoming before Spider-Man: Homecoming? Right. You know, like they they guy. had a movie that they wanted to do. They needed a, a 
uh, director who is going to come in and deliver that movie exactly. But, um, you know, talking to the filmmakers behind Star Wars, one of the things that is one of the best bits of advice that when I was interviewing Dave Filoni once is he said, the way you talk about Star Wars is not by talking about Star Wars. It's by talking about other films. And that's how you talk to George, right? Like that's how, if you wanted to get an idea for an episode for a Clone Wars adventure, you couldn't relate it in terms of Star Wars. You had to relate it in terms of movies that came before it. A pastiche of this meets this, right? Or um, how it would apply, right? Like, and this is how we got Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious in Clone Wars. It's how we got Kagamusha in Clone Wars. It's how we got Kurosawa's Stray Dog in Clone Wars. Um, you know, they did an episode based on the third man. And that that hyper-awareness of film history and film directors coming in and being allowed to bring their own inspirations to it is what's going to keep it different from Marvel, right? Marvel does feel samey, but you can't tell me Rogue One feels the same as Last Jedi, right? Rogue One is much more patterned after those gritty World War II films. And Last Jedi is patterned more after, uh, you know, a really heady thematic art film. Right. Like they have different places that the filmmakers are coming from. Solo's a, a heist movie and it's coming from that direction. So and, and Mandalorian's a Western. Right. And I think that's what's really exciting about Star Wars. The Marvel Universe, it's hard to skin a whole bunch of different genres over it. Right. Because at the end of the day, it's their 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 superhero stories told in parallel, even though those superheroes have different sorts of foes and different sorts of powers. At the end of the day, you're getting a costume superhero punching a bad guy. And with Star Wars, you can say, how are we going to tell a Western? How are we going to tell a samurai movie? How are we going to tell a murder mystery? How are we going to tell a heist movie, right? How are we going to tell a saga film, which is different fundamentally than this World War II film that we're doing? Star Wars has a lot more room for that sort of stuff than Marvel does, I think. So to build off of that, is there a genre or a pastiche or something that you would love to see Star Wars tackle next? I in would the like to see something that that sort of just. I mean, I think one of the things that makes Star Wars Star Wars is that level of sort of epic action, but heroes that have things at stake. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't mind seeing a movie or a, a TV show that that plays with lower stakes in Star Wars, right? to use that. I, one of the reasons I loved Claudia Gray's book, Lost Stars, so much was that it, at its heart, it was a love story and the background was Star Wars. And I would love to see a love story like that played out in Star Wars, um, a functional love story. Well, I, I don't, Lost Stars wasn't functional, but I mean, neither was Han and Leia, neither right. was Anakin and Padme. So maybe something where Love does overcome with the background of Star Wars would be interesting. And I think that would be really cool. I would really love to see some more out and out comedy. I personally, I'm a big believer that they should be doing animated shorts with Jar Jar that are just like homages to Chaplin films, right? Like they don't even have to have the voices. It can just be silent. I would love to see more stuff like that. I think there's a lot of people who get really protective over Star Wars and they want Star Wars to be the same thing and they want it to be the thing that grows with them. And so people, some of, some of the original generation of Star Wars fans don't necessarily want kids movies. They want something that's grittier, that's aged up with them. But I think playing it at all levels and knowing that Star Wars is available for everyone in every sort of genre is the way to go. And I think that's the way to keep the audience growing. And that's the way to relate to people and to make sure that there's something for everybody, not just a little bit for a small group. That is a beautiful place to end. Brian, we just want to say thank you so much for joining us. What a great time we had. Yes. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, but before you go, uh, do you have any place that you'd like to have listeners uh, find you where can they connect with you online um they, yeah they can connect to me online um they can find me at swankmotron.com uh which is my website you can sign up for my mailing list there which is and that's also my twitter handle so swankmotron and then if you like listening to me um talk about star wars you can do that at the full of sith podcast and then 
my Twitter and my website is probably the best place to catch up with where I'm writing about Star Wars. I'm doing some stuff for Star Wars Insider pretty soon, so you'll probably see some of that sooner than later. And uh, yeah, that's that's where to find me. Cool. Yeah, we'll make sure that's in the show notes so that people can easily find you. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. Please check out our teaching resources at coruscantcc.podbean.com. And if you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram at CoruscantCCPod, or you can email us at c3podfeedback at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group, the CCC Common Room. It's a safe place to debate, collaborate, and ruminate on all things Star Wars, teaching, and film. You can find that at www.facebook.com slash groups slash C3 Common Room. This is Brian Young, and you're listening to Coruscant Community College, because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone. This podcast is not endorsed by the Walt Disney Company or Lucasfilm Limited. It is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. All names, sounds, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Disney and their respective trademark and copyright holders. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Coruscant Community College unless otherwise indicated. Nothing more will I teach you today. You've taken your first step into a larger world. We will watch your career with great interest. Coruscant Community College, because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone.